All right, if I can have everybody to their seats. Right. All right. Thank you all for coming this morning. I know it's a, it's a holiday weekend. And so when there's a holiday, people usually take holidays away from God. So Chris wants me to get in trouble. It's easy to... To be like, you know, let me relax today. Let me, as if we've had enough of God. Forgetting that we're going to spend eternity with God. There's no relaxing in eternity from God. There's no holidays. So, no, thank you for coming, for being here this morning. For those who are traveling, be warm and well-fed. I think I got that from Star Trek or something somewhere. This time sounds real Star Trek-ish, right? Be warm and well-fed. Initially, when I knew where we were headed in this supernatural storyline of the Bible series, especially earlier on, and I knew that at some point we were going to hit the plagues of Egypt, I was really, really excited. Because even if you're not in a supernatural storyline, trying to understand the Bible from the way that the ancient you know, Near Eastern Israelites would have understood it or just having more of a, a supernatural worldview because we live in such a more modern scientific worldview where miracles and those things have been relegated to the past. I couldn't wait to do this message because I knew like just without even being in a series like this, the plagues are in and of itself a supernatural marvel. But as we've gone through this series, the Lord has given us a lot of insights into things that had way before this. And I realized in studying for this that much of what I would communicate about the plagues being initially that God is showing the gods of Egypt that you're too small, I've communicated hand over fist. It wouldn't be new to make that connection and to show you that. And in studying, I realized that the plagues are not really the issue. In fact, today's message is less about the plagues and more about what they mean in light of the supernatural storyline. In and of themselves, it's clear God is showing himself to be greater than Egypt and any gods they worship. You don't need me to tell you that. There were some members of our church that watched the Prince of Egypt the other night. And I was coming with chicken and biscuits, but the line was so long, I just couldn't make it. 
What I kept, what I kept texting him saying, look, I'm on the way. The line is long. I'll be there soon. Then 20 minutes later, I forgot the napkins. I got to go back and get them. I couldn't make it, but it was fun to just have fun with, with my folks like that. And then around 12 in the morning, 1 in the morning, I was like, oh, I'm just pulling up now. Who's hungry? And everyone kind of got the gist. But even in a movie like that, it shows the destruction of the gods of Egypt as it relates to the God of Israel. It's clear. What I think is missing from our understanding of the plagues of Egypt is what do they really mean in light of the whole supernatural storyline? So today, we are going to look at the plagues and what gods that God was targeting, but there is a much deeper issue than these 10 plagues against Egypt. Now, many people, at least at the beginning of this series, were probably uncomfortable with the idea of there being other gods beside God. In fact, even me, I would have said, no, nah, there's only one God only one God. And in, and in one sense, that's still true, but there's a distinction between there's only one God and there's only one God like our God. And that's a distinction that God himself makes. And so to, to really have a message where we're going to look at God going against the gods, we have to understand that from God's perspective, he is seeing them as other gods, lesser gods, that he's going to humble. And so we're going to start this message at the end of the plagues and hear from God himself to see how he's processing this. Exodus 12, 12 says this, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. From God's perspective, he has no problem calling them gods. He has a problem with people calling them gods like he is God. And so from his perspective, from our God's perspective, he is going to execute judgment on those gods. So if you're here, do not be uncomfortable with thinking that there are other gods unless you think other gods are like the God of the Bible. He has no problem. These are his words. There's no insight needed here. This is just what it says. I will execute judgment on all the gods of Egypt. To understand the significance of the plagues, there are four developments that we have to look at. To understand how it fits in the supernatural storyline of the Bible, there are four developments we have to look at. Now, I am known for cliffhangers in this series, tempting people to sin against the Lord and me. So there will not be a cliffhanger today. So let me look at, look at this. Shame on y'all. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Hey, look, hey, let's do a worship service today. I don't even know if I really feel like preaching today. Man, y'all come on back up. Let's get a couple more songs. Actually, I'll lead. Thank you, Lord. For... I just want me and Roger on the drums. We'll really have a service today. We're not going to look at all four of them today, though. 
we're going to look at two and a third of them because all these four developments are significant. But we'll hear enough today to understand how the plagues fit into the broader supernatural storyline of the Bible. Having said that, let's begin. And as always, remember, God is intentional. Every detail matters, some more than others. Let's begin with this question. Why is God judging the other gods? Why is he judging the gods of Egypt? Let's go to Exodus 7, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read a couple verses in different parts of Exodus to allow God to answer this question. Why is he judging the other gods? Exodus 7, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So here God makes it plain. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. In Exodus 8.10, God says this, and he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Exodus 8, verse 22, says this, but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Exodus 9.14, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Exodus 10.1 and 2, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Why is God judging the other gods? He is making a distinction between himself and them. He wants them to know who the Lord really is. Who is really God of the earth? Now, this is largely due to Pharaoh's response to letting the Israelites go in the first place. Here's what Pharaoh says after Moses and Aaron appealed to him to let the Israelites go. Exodus 5, verses 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now think about this in context. At this point, all God has said is, let my people go worship me with a feast. He didn't say release them from slavery. He just said, let my people hold a feast to me in the wilderness, which gives the implication that they'll come back. God wasn't asking for their complete release. It was let them worship me. Now, Pharaoh is used to many gods, as you'll see in a moment. And so his response is, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. In other words, I don't care what your God says. I don't know who he is. I don't submit to him. Why should I let Israel go? Because your God says let, him go. let them go. You see, Pharaoh knows his own gods, but he doesn't know his God's God. Let me make sure you understand what I mean. The point of all of this is God showing that I'm greater than the gods that you believe in. He's not saying your gods aren't real. He's saying they're not me. This isn't a discussion of are they really gods or not. This is a discussion of who's greater. So God says, okay, you don't know who I am? Let me introduce myself. Now we get to the plague before the plagues. There's a scene that happens before the plagues that we have to start with. Exodus 7, beginning of verse 8, reading the 13. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Remember, God is intentional. So here is the opening scene just before the first plague. God intentionally tells Moses and Aaron, to use a serpent. Why? Why use a serpent? Well, there are two layers here. There are two things at least that are going on. Here's the first layer. In Egypt, serpents were a dominant iconography. They were pictures of them everywhere. They were worshiped. There was a a sense where serpents had a multifaceted view in Egypt. Many of them were seen as gods and powerful. 
And there was one aspect of them where they were, were, were evil. And so in the context of Egyptian beliefs, the serpent has a lot of symbolism and a lot of meaning. And here are some of the things that they attributed to serpents. Divine power and protection. So here's a, a particular commentary on this point. The cobra, specifically the Egyptian cobra, Nahalel, known as Uraeus, was a prominent symbol in Egyptian iconography. It represented a protective power of divine authority, particularly that of the pharaoh. The Uraeus was often depicted on the royal headdress, such as the crown or the brow band, symbolizing the pharaoh's sovereignty and divine protection. Right? So there's sovereignty, there's divine protection, there's all this trust in the serpent. Also, renewal and fertility. The serpent was linked to concepts of regeneration, rebirth, and fertility in Egyptian mythology. The Ouroboros, a serpent or snake depicted in a circular or infinity shape, symbolized cyclical time, eternal life, the cycle of renewal. Serpent imagery could also be associated with the goddess Wajet, who was often depicted as a cobra and was linked to fertility and protection. So if you were to look at ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, you would see scenes of like a staff with two serpents twirled around it. That was the way that they thought of divine power, renewal, fertility, eternity. You know how the symbol for eternity is a sidewards eight? Theirs were two serpents around. Third, underworld and chaos. In some instances, the serpent was connected to the realm of the underworld and associated with chaotic forces. The snake-like creature was connected to the realm of the underworld and associated with chaos. The creature, named Apep or Apophis, represented an embodiment of chaos and was depicted as an adversary seeking to disrupt order and harmony. The sun god Ra and other deities battled Apep in mythological narratives to ensure the continuation of the cosmic order. So the serpent also represents chaos, the underworld. That's the first layer. The second layer is the serpent, earthly speaking, is the imagery of Satan. Keep in mind that whether the Egyptians know what's happening, God knows what he's doing, who the gods are he's targeting, and who the serpent is, what the serpent represents when he chooses this particular imagery. So the serpent, earthly speaking, is the imagery of Satan who deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. But heavenly speaking, the serpent is a seraph. In Isaiah 6, you will see these creatures called the seraphim. The Hebrew word for seraphim is serpent, is a snake. So these are serpents who are upright, not flat, with wings, screaming holy, holy, holy around the presence of God all the time. So when you put all of these realities together, remembering that the serpent 
And the, the serpent, Pharaoh's magicians created another serpent that Aaron's serpent ate all of those. Here's what God is saying to Pharaoh before the first plague. Your gods that you think have divine power and fertility are nothing compared to me. In fact, they do as I say. And the god of chaos, the serpent, that you're afraid of, you have not seen any chaos yet, like what you're about to see. So as that serpent ate those serpents, Pharaoh and them should have been like, No bueno. That's not good. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, and so we begin the first plague. We're not going to look at all of these because it's deeper than the plagues. But we're going to hit just a few of them, and the rest I'm just going to describe for each plague, who the God is that God is targeting and so forth. That's the majority of it but we'll read some of the passages that highlight the plagues. But most of these we're just going to run through because what we're after is deeper than just the 10 plagues. We're after how does this fit into the storyline of the Bible? First plague, we read Exodus 7, verses 14 through 19. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will go weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So it wasn't just the Nile turning water into blood. It was all the water. So it'd be one thing if it's like, hey, something's wrong with the Nile. I ain't worried about it. I'm going swimming. Look at your pool. There's something wrong with your pool. Well, let's go to the river then. There's something wrong with the river. Then let's go to the lake. Nah, fam, there's something wrong with the lake. But then it says even the vessels of wood and vessels of stone had blood coming out of them. Vessels of wood and vessels of stone are idols of other gods. So God is saying, I am taking away your lifeline in which the water gives you, but I'm also showing you that these gods that you worship, these idols are also bleeding. How does blood come from a wooden vessel or a stone? This is shocking. 
This plague, turning the Nile to blood, was a judgment against Apis, the god of the Nile, Nisus, the goddess of the Nile, and Kanum, guardian of the Nile. The Nile was also believed to be the bloodstream of Osiris, who was reborn each year when the river flooded. So God is destroying the basis of their economy. Millions of fish died in the river, and the water was unusable. The detail of fish dying is important. Hold on to that thought. The second plague, frogs. This is in Exodus 8, 1 through 15. We're not going to read it. The second plague was bringing frogs from the Nile was a judgment against Hecate, the frog-headed goddess of birth. Frogs were thought to be sacred and not to be killed. All right. So, you have to, so when you understand this stuff, you have to realize what God is actually doing. So here are frogs that are attributed to the goddess Hecate, and they're to be worshipped and not killed. So God sends frogs all over the land, and then they die, and they're piled up everywhere. And the frogs aren't supposed to be killed because Hecate wouldn't kill the frogs because they represent who she is, but the frogs are piled up everywhere dead. It's almost as if God is saying, call upon Hecate and tell her to clean these frogs up. Clean up on aisle five. God is mocking this goddess more so because the frogs are all dead, and to the Egyptians, they're the source of life. Third plague, gnats or lice. That's a plague to us too. We still to this day. The plague was targeting the god Geb or Set, who was considered the god of the dust or earth, the god of the desert. So you have to understand something. The Egyptians have gods for everything, for everything. Israel has one god over everything. And this is what he's establishing. All the gods that you have is not one of them powerful enough to stop me. All these gods. Now, I've been in the streets at different parts of my life. And there were times where we beefing with these other people and you assess what you're going to do based on numbers. Oh, there's four of us and there's 12 of them. So two things are going to happen. Either we got a weapon that changes everything or three things. Or we're going to be gangsters and just fight back to back and probably get whooped. Or we're going to be wise and get going. Now, depending on where you're from, that decision, and sadly, I wasn't around people who liked option three. <laughs> Technically, the God of Israel is outnumbered by the gods of the Egyptians. Is there not one God that can stop the God of Israel? The gnats come, and when they come, this is the plague. The Pharaoh's magicians were able to do the blood and the frogs, but once the gnats came, they said in Exodus 8, 18 to 19, here's what they say once it gets to this third plague. 
The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. It was just like, look, bro, we've done everything we can do. And like, like the gnats, no, what you, I mean, we can't do nothing about it. This is the finger of God. That should have been enough to be like, all right, he's real. That's enough. But it wasn't. Fourth play, flies. Flies were connected to the god, the god Hepri, the god of creation and rebirth, who was often depicted with a fly on his head. And so by God having all the, see, the idea wasn't that the flies, that these things could produce. It was that you can't stop them from producing. They don't go away when you call out to the god Kepri to ask him to take these gods away. They just multiply. They're like Bebe's kids. We don't die, we multiply. Y'all don't know about that. Y'all don't want that smoke. Number five, livestock, the fifth plague, right? This was a judgment on the goddess Hathor and the goddess Apis who were depicted as cattle. Remember that thought. They were depicted as cattle. Remember that thought. As all the plagues are, God protects Israel from experiencing any of these. When the Egyptians' cattle died, Pharaoh even sent people to see how the Israelites' cattle died. Listen to this in Exodus 9, 6 and 7. And the next day, the Lord did this thing. When I first read that, I thought it said, did his thing. I was like, yeah, that's right. That's where you're from, where I'm from. He did his thing. The Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. Sixth plague. This plague could be seen as an affront to Imhotep, the god associated with healing and medicine. He couldn't do anything. God is letting Egypt know who he is, showing that the gods that they worship cannot stop what he's doing. This is the primary reason, as we heard last week, that a mixed multitude of people left with Israel. This is the primary reason. There were some people who were watching all of this because where Israel was, it wasn't that far away. So you could see all this is happening to us, but nothing's happening to them. They're over there with popcorn watching what's happening over here. Israelites are lined up just eating whatever, like, wow, look, that's crazy. That's a lot of frogs, man. So when it comes time to go, there are people who were like, you know what? I'm going with them. So it says a mixed multitude of people left because they saw this and they said, yeah, I'm with him. Now, these last couple plagues, before God sent these plagues, God sent Pharaoh a special message. He told Pharaoh that these other plagues, these next three would be more severe than the others. And they were designed to convince Pharaoh and all the people that there is none like the Lord. And here's where grace happened even for Pharaoh. He was told to take the cattle and whatever was left and bring them indoors. And some of them listened, and some of them didn't. And so here was the seventh plague, hail and thunder. The seventh plague attacked a few different gods and goddesses. The sky god Nut, Osiris, the god's name. I didn't name it. It's just you look it up. Google 
Egyptian god Nut, and you will see. The sky goddess Osiris, the crop fertility god, and Set, the storm god. This hail was unlike any they had seen before because it was associated with fire. But again, the Israelites untouched. The eighth plague, locusts. This plague was against the god Osiris, who was associated with crops and vegetation. The ninth plague, darkness. This was directly targeting the sun god, Ra, or Amun-Ra, who was a prominent deity in ancient Egypt. And this plague would have said, where is your sun? Where is your light, sun god? This is one of the greatest gods in Egypt and he couldn't do anything about it. Here's what Exodus 10, 21 through 23 tells us. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, but darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in, like, dark, dark. That usually happens when you're used to the light and your eyes are dilated, and then you go into dark, and then it's just like for a minute, you can't adjust. But at some point, your eyes will adjust to the darkest dark, and you can see something. Okay, this says they couldn't see anything. They couldn't see their hands in front of their faces. They couldn't move for three days because Ra, Amun Ra, could not help them. And then we get to the final plague, the death of the firstborn son. This plague was a direct challenge to the power of Pharaoh, who was regarded as divine and considered the incarnation of Horus, the falcon-headed god. Now, there is a backdrop to the 10th plague, all right? There's backdrop. Many of us know that there's a connection to Jesus in this plague. But there's a backstory to this particular plague that's in the scriptures that it'd be helpful to understand why would God kill the firstborn? It seems harsh. Exodus 1, 15 through 2, verse 10. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of who was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife, to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birthstool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let male children live. So here you have Pharaoh saying, if they're sons, kill them. If they're daughters, they can live. Obviously, we'll marry their daughters, but we'd have to fight against their sons. So kill their sons. But the midwives wouldn't do it. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and, and, and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And the sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So here you have these women hiding their sons because they understand that they will be killed. 
Now, I don't know, Moses, I, you know, most babies are either cute or not. Be honest, you know what I'm saying? So I don't know when they say he was a fine child. I don't know how you look at a baby and be like, man, it's something different about this baby. I mean, it's a baby, you know? I've never seen a baby and be like, well, you know, it's just like it's a baby. It's just small face. It's Everyone says, oh, you look just like your mom and dad. It's like, wait till they get a little older before you say that. I mean, they don't look like nobody yet. It changes, right? Apparently, Moses was one good-looking kid as a newborn. But they were hiding the children, the males, because Egypt was killing them. And then when you get to Exodus 4, 21 through 23, here's what God says. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you go before Pharaoh, do all the miracles that I have put in your power but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord Israel, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So from God's perspective, the killing of the firstborn was provoked by the Egyptians. They were killing the sons of Israel, and then when God made it clear that these people are my son, it went from people to singular, let my son go. Pharaoh said no, and God said, then I'm going to kill your firstborn son. So from God's perspective, this is the Egyptians reaping what they have sown. It is the consequences of disobedience eventually catch up to you. And this is what happens. Now, there are some theologians who I think are rightly so to some degree. They would say this. In fact, Michael Kennedy, who, uh, who writes in the Lexham Bible Dictionary, he says this about the plagues and how to process them. He says, in the Exodus, in the Exodus narrative, the plagues are linked to the theme of creation and were a response to Pharaoh disturbing the created in moral orders. So his point is, if you look at creation and the animals and the different things, and, and then they distorting the land and worshiping these creatures, and all, they would equate that to, to looking back to creation and saying, this is why the plagues happen. And while that may be the case, and there's some reason to think that way, I would to some degree disagree that that's what's primarily happening right here. Sure, part of it is reaping the treatment of creation, but God is always forward-thinking. God's always forward-thinking. That's why we have, like, prophecy. Let me tell you what's going to happen, what it's going to look like. We even have, like, outcome language, like this will lead to this. In the Bible, God is always forward-thinking. So while it could be connected to the past, in the supernatural storyline, we have to see the 10 plagues in light of the rest of the story, what goes on afterwards, not just what happened before. So when you get to Exodus and the people are leaving, how do you process the 10 plagues after they leave? Well, you will not fully understand the 10 plagues, if you don't understand their connection to the 10 commandments. 
the number is intentional. There are 10 plagues. There are 10 commandments. And the 10 commandments show up just shortly after the 10 plagues. You get 10 plagues, and then you get through the Red Sea. Then you get a couple chapters later in Exodus 20. Now God is giving these 10 commandments. The number is intentional. The plagues and the commandments are not a one-to-one comparison to each other, but the plagues set in motion a deeper reality. Here's what I mean. The 10th plague is the death of the firstborn son. It's the only plague that Israel needed to respond to God. Right? The first nine plagues, they were watching this like we'd watch a movie, like, wow, that's crazy. Look at how big that hailstone was. Watch out, watch out, watch out. Oh, it got him. I know I would be like that. We'd be like, man, look at this. Man, it just crushed this whole head. The first nine plagues, nothing happened. But the tenth plague, they needed to respond in obedience. So let's go back to a verse that we saw when we started and add one more verse after that. Exodus 12, verses 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the tenth plague sets in motion the beginning of obedience to God. Plagues one through nine, Israel didn't do anything. Plague 10, you have to show obedience to God or you will suffer the same consequences. And the 10th plague was about the firstborn son, the death of the firstborn son. So Israel's first act of obedience is in reaction to the death of the firstborn son. This is the first time consequences are given for not obeying this reality. So the Ten Commandments then become the continuation of the Tenth Plague in that obedience is required by Israel or they will experience sort of a plague of their own. There will be consequences for disobedience. So you got ten plagues judging Egypt for their sin, and then you get Ten Commandments of God, Yahweh, teaching them how to worship him unlike the Egyptians worship their God. The Ten Commandments in Exodus work like this. The first three are about loving God. The fourth one is almost like self-care. That's the Sabbath. The last six were about loving your neighbor. Now, in light of what we read about the gods being cattle, and the gods being all these vessels of wood and all of these things, in light of all that we just read about Egypt, look at the Ten Commandments through that lens. First commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. So I just brought you out of a land where they had a god for everything. You know how in today's days, 
Some Pentecostals think there's a devil in everything. Whatever demon is in my car, you just need some gas, man, right? It's like some Pentecostals have a devil for everything. Egypt had a God for everything. And God says, I just showed you that none of those gods are me. So he starts with, you should have no other gods before me. It makes sense. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Vessels of wood and vessels of stone, he turned to blood. That was God saying, this isn't the way you worship God. Do not make images that resemble me. This is a direct connection to Egypt. The third, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The most misunderstood commandment of all. Many people think this means not saying Jesus Christ. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about saying, oh, my God. He's talking about do not take the Lord's name in vain where you agree to worship him and you do the opposite. That's how you take the Lord's name in vain. Not saying Jesus, but by saying I believe in him, but I'm, I don't. So God is saying don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In other words, take me seriously because I took your salvation seriously. The fourth is the Sabbath, and then you get the rest of them all have to do with loving your neighbor. Honor your mother and father. You shall not murder, not commit adultery, not steal, not bear false witness, shall not covet. All of these commandments are in conjunction to the plagues. These are 10 ways that I'm judging them for their sin, 10 ways that you should not sin against me. That's what this is. And the only plague they had to respond to is the death of the firstborn son. So the 10 plagues paved the way for the 10 commandments, and the commandments were a reaction to the judgment against the gods. But the 10 commandments paved way for another judgment. As the death of the firstborn sons paved the way for Israel's obedience, Israel's disobedience to the Ten Commandments paves the way to the death of the firstborn son. Like, wait a minute. What just happened? Ten Commandments, your first act of obedience is in reaction to the death of the firstborn son. You get Ten Commandments. And that disobedience now paves the way for the death of God's firstborn son. Listen to Mark 15, beginning in verse 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Elahi, Elahi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. 
at the crucifixion, some of the plagues against the gods of Egypt reappeared. The first one is darkness. Exodus 10, 22. Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. Mark 15, 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So three days of darkness in Egypt, three hours of darkness on the cross. Keep in mind that who is on the cross and who God is judging is his son himself who did not sin. So three hours of darkness on the cross is greater as an innocent, as the innocent God is much greater than three days of darkness for the guilty. You see death of the firstborn. Exodus 12, 19 and 29 and 30. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Mark 15, 36, 37. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Keep in mind that these two plagues happen in the same chronological order of each other. Egypt, ninth plague, darkness, tenth plague, death of the firstborn. On the cross, darkness, for three hours, death of the firstborn. Darkness, then death, ninth and tenth. So there's one more plague that's out of sequence but of great importance. Blood and water. Exodus 7, 16. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. John 19, 31 through 35. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it bore witness, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. Keep in mind that John is saying, I saw it, and it's true, in reference to the blood and water coming out of Jesus. So why did blood and water 
come out of Jesus. And what's the connection to the first plague? Well, it becomes clear the first plague introduces, the first blood and water plague introduces death. The last blood and water plague introduces life. The first blood and water made the fish die. The last blood and water made people fishers of men. So much so that the fish is a symbol that people put on the back of their cars to demonstrate Christianity because the early church, in fear of persecution, used to draw fish on particular places so that other Christians knew there are Christians here. And the fish were because most of the apostles were fishermen. So the fish and the blood and water die, but they become fishers of men when Jesus is blood and water. But does that explain why water and blood came out of Jesus? Does that explain the connection to the first plague? Not quite. 1 John 5, 6 through 9. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. So what's the connection? What's the connection to the first plague and water coming out of Jesus? We will discuss this. In a few weeks. It's not a cliffhanger. Not to me. (laughs) But here's what's important to know for now and how to process the ten plagues in the greater storyline of the Bible. The plagues were not just judgments against Egypt but they set in motion a precedent in the way that God relates to the gods and his people. In Egypt, God judged the gods for the evil done to his people. On the cross, God judged God for the evil his people have done to him. But the imagery doesn't stop here. To set in motion a pattern of judgment from God. We haven't gotten a revelation in the seven bowls of God's wrath where some of the same plagues appear there. The plagues in Egypt are not just ten plagues against them, but a precedent of how God is going to interact with judging other gods and judging humanity and their disobedience. You cannot fully appreciate the idea of God against the gods, though, unless you remember that God went against God. His son himself. You cannot fully appreciate 
God against the gods, unless you remember that God went against God, the Son. We should never be more fascinated at God going against the gods than we are at God going against God himself. God treated Jesus worse than the gods of Egypt because God's people treated God worse than the gods of Egypt. And as believers, you and I have to be careful that our vessels of wood and vessels of stone, that the idols that we hold on to, our comfort, our time, our traumas, that we don't worship them so much that we mistreat our God, the God who saved us. It is easy to be like Israel and want to go back to Egypt, back to the same habits and patterns that have enslaved us, stuff that we're ashamed of when we do them, but we run back to them for comfort when we think we need them. We are not that much different than Israel. We just have a greater responsibility than them because Jesus came. God was judged. God judged God. He didn't judge the gods. He judged God himself so that you and I would be the fish that flow from the blood and water that came out of the rock. We'll come back. There's something significant. Remember I told you there's only two and one-third things that we're going to look at today. There are four developments, two and one-third, and this concludes. Father, your word is so layered, so multifaceted, so amazing. Lord, I've said this to you plenty of times, but I want to say this again in front of my brothers and sisters, my fellow perseverers. Lord, I just ask you for forgiveness for having a low view of your word and evaluating your Bible for a long time as a duty and something that can even be boring to me looking at your Bible only from how it benefits me, avoiding the parts I don't like or don't understand or don't really care about, and only looking for verses to apply and to tell me what to do or to help me judge other people. Your word is not a, a, a set of laws to obey, but a wonderful narrative to help us see and know that you are the Lord. And I thank you that you've given salvation to many of us in this room and we do know you, but Lord, I pray that as this series continues, as we take what we've already heard and apply that and add to it little by little, that we do become those who use a little salt, not just on others, but on us. Sometimes we need a little salt. So Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you that there's so much depth that we haven't even hit some of the major points from this that we'll see in a couple weeks. Help us to have an endless fascination with you and your word. And for those of us who struggle reading, give us the grace to press through it or the willingness to even listen to your Bible being read. Your word is too precious, it's too important, it's too amazing. And we do not grow in awe observing how the world relates to you. We grow in awe observing how you relate to the world in your word. For your glory and our good, in your name we pray, amen.
sworn it was a water here. Visible. All right. Uh, we do have just a few questions in, so if you have any that you have on your mind that you want answered, please uh, get those in. You see the number uh, projected up on the screen. Uh, so um, there are like three questions in this first from this first person. Uh, so those questions are, and I can repeat as you need. Um, how, how about the first three plagues? How do we know Israel was not affected? Could these early plagues be a witness for Israel to see who God really was? How do we know that they weren't affected? Because the Bible says that. So it just I read that verse already. Like the Bible says that the plagues, I mean, even the plagues did not affect Israel at all. None of them did. So that's just that's just plain scripture. So it's just it God had no intention of affecting. You have to understand the Israelites already knew who God was. It wasn't remember in Exodus. Three, four, when God came to the elders of Israel and said, the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they weren't like, who are you talking about? They were excited because they had thought that God basically forgotten them or wasn't as powerful because, as I said, when you think of all the gods of Egypt, like, think about this for a second. When go, to, go to, like, a city like New York City, right? And you just look around and think about how many people are there. There's 8 million people that live in that city. Think about trying to be godly in the midst of all those people, trying to reach all those people, seeing people worship all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the God that you believe in, will mock you, maybe even physically hurt you just because you believe in that God. You are scared to share the gospel and be faithful sometimes in your own communities. Imagine being a people who have been slaves for hundreds of years and think that all these gods exist as well as their God, but for 400 years, their God hasn't been able to save them. So Israel, it wasn't that they didn't believe he existed and the plagues affected them. It was God showing them, I'm here. I see what you've gone through. Nothing's going to happen to you. It wasn't until the 10th plague and now you need to respond because that plague is connected to the death of the firstborn son and it's set in motion. What God knew what would happen was the death of his firstborn. So the scriptures basically say that, that Israel wasn't affected by the first nine plagues. The next question uh, is about the serpent symbolism. Hey, thank you. What kind of water is this, man? When you drink some cold water, when you're thirsty, this joint tastes like like the, the, the wallet that came out of the rock when Moses hit it. I don't even like Acadia, but right now, this one is the best thing I've ever tasted in my life. So how does the serpent symbolism relate to Big Pharma and medicine hospitals nowadays that we see now? It's a logo that they use. I don't... Well, I'm, no, I'm joking a little bit. Partly, I mean... So Egypt was known for medicines. Like, I mean, they were gods of medicine. One of the plagues was, the boils was attacking a god that was known for medicine. So, and you'd be surprised how much of Egyptology, Kemetic theology that we still have, you'd be surprised how much Egyptian, Greek, and Roman our culture still is. I mean, the whole DC, the whole setup is all Egyptian. 
That's all with the lake and then the Washington Monument and the, t- and the thing behind it. That's straight from Egypt. That's, e- that's Egyptian. So the, there's a lot of things that are that still affect us today. I, you know, I don't know if there's a deep connection to, but I think pharmacy, you know, they focus on medicine and they use that. And there are times when, um, there are times I think when just the enemy is keeping sort of iconography out there. He does that. God does the same thing though. God does the same thing. Like little things like hidden in plain sight. I think the enemy does that a lot. I think God does it a lot. Like even stuff like, we, I talked about this last week. What was it called? Uh, Satan Con in Boston, right? So what's funny is, if you think about Comic Con, right, you just think about, okay, you dress up and you go, Satan Con, you dress up as Satan and worship him. But when you look at the words, it's like Satan Con, right? It's just hidden in plain sight. It's like, okay, God hates the proud but loves the humble. So we celebrate pride. It's all hidden in plain sight. It's like, there are Christmas carols that people sing that are explaining what Jesus did to them, and they love them, but when they stand before God and reject them, he's going to be like, you sang this song since you were eight years old. The words were embedded in your heart. A lot of stuff is hidden in plain sight. I think the enemy does the same thing, but now it's becoming more robust. But in terms of pharmacy and Egyptology, I don't think there's a major connection. I think it's a logo at best. But the enemy is clever, so I wouldn't be surprised if the connection is made there. All right, this is uh, this question is about the stone and wood vessel. Person asks, uh, couldn't the stone and wood vessel simply have been vessels used for carrying drinking water? At 719, it's just referring to the drinking water vessel. It could, but a lot of theologians think that those are actual idols that they worship. So, sure, it could be that. It could be just what they carry. Um, but in stone, though, they didn't really carry water in stone. It usually was wood. So the stones represent, and this is when it, when it connects to who the gods are and how they craft those. And so you get God immediately saying, do not make any graven images, right? Like, why would he say that to them when we don't have any other description of graven images from Israel, from Egypt, except the mention of these uh, vessels of wood and stone? So sure, I'm sure they could have carried water in them, but there's looking in the deeper meaning, God is after something significant. And so even though there's not a one-to-one to to each of the Ten Commandments and the Ten Plagues, God is teaching them, do not worship me the way they worship their gods. And so all of the language is intentional. There are no other graven images that we're aware of apart from the goddess who's like cattle, right? So then you get to the golden calf narrative, right? So there is a return back to that. This is what Israel knows. So everything God is saying is to stop them from that. All right. Thank you. Um, do you think the God? Do you think that God intentionally hardened um, the heart of Pharaoh until the last plague in order to display dominion over the other gods, or that Pharaoh was just stubborn in that moment? I think it's both. I mean, God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, right? He said that. And he said it at one I didn't read that passage, but he told Pharaoh, I'm hardening your heart so that you and all Egypt will know that I'm God, right? But then it says, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. I think, I think oftentimes that language, it's just like, it's the language of God's sovereignty sometimes. 
So just like you look at Acts 16, it'll say, when the Lord opened up Lydia's heart to believe what the apostles were saying, right? But then a couple verses later, it doesn't say the Lord opened up their heart, but that they believed. So when the language is used, a lot of it is God's sovereignty. Like, you can't do this unless God does this anyway. But in Exodus, God specifically said, I'm hardening their heart. I'm hardening his heart. And the purpose of hardening his heart, it wasn't, I don't think God hardened his heart beyond what Pharaoh would do anyway. So when it says, but Pharaoh hardened his heart, it's not like Pharaoh would be like, oh, please, I want to believe in you, God of Israel. God was like, his heart is hard anyway. I mean, he was killing the children. Before God even hardened his heart, he said, who is the God of Israel? So I think sometimes we get this impression. Not, I'm not saying the question does, but in general, people have this impression like God hardens the hearts or stops people from believing in who want to. That's just not how it works. Like Pharaoh wasn't believing anyway, and so God said, I'm going to oblige. I'm not going to let you believe. It was more like, you're not going to believe, so I'm not even going to let you believe. And part of it was you've killed the sons. I mean, we heard Moses' story, but how many in the two ladies who were, but how many people, how many sons got murdered, though? How many, remember, remember Genesis 3.15, right? This woman will give birth to a seed, and he will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. Now that Israel is established, Satan knows that the seed is going to probably come from this group of people. So why are they killing the, the males? Because the he that was prophet, that God said is going to crush your head is coming. They don't know who it is. And you see that, the killing of the, first, the boys in that. You see it in Herod's day when Jesus is born. So that theme is just God understands what's happening, right? So when he hardens Pharaoh's heart, it's not just, oh, I'm going to stop you from believing even though you want to. It's your heart is hard, and I'm going to oblige you. All right, uh, there are two more questions. Here's the first one. The first one says, I know that uh, Jesus called out asking God the Father why he had forsaken him. But where in Scripture does it say that God was against Jesus? Where in Scripture does it say God was against Jesus? The actual words, God was against Jesus? That's the I don't know if there's an actual words that, that say that. So it depends on what you mean by God is against Jesus. I mean, God clearly allowed his son to die, and, and Jesus on the cross is saying real emotion. He's saying real things. Why have you forsaken me? Like, God is, is punishing Jesus as if he committed the sin that all of us have done. In its most basic sense, in that moment on the cross, God is against his son. He's against Jesus. He's not, that's not a, it's a, the reward comes after, but in that moment, the father and the son are not united in the same way. And Jesus feels that more than anything else. If you notice on the cross, he never complains about the physical pain. There's nothing he says about physical pain. In fact, what we'll see in a few weeks, when they initially offered him some wine mixed with myrrh that he rejected, it's because that concoction was used to numb the pain of the people who were on the cross because it was so excruciating. So when Jesus refused to, to, to drink from that, he was saying, I'm ex the physical pain is not the issue. 
Jesus didn't want to be relieved from the physical pain. It was that disconnection from the Father. So if the language of God being against the gods is a semantical thing for you and you think, I get it, but my saying that is highlighting Jesus' reality and the way that our sin is atoned for, he's still the son, but in that moment, he is something else. He is our sacrifice. And in that moment, God is against God. Now I'll, I'll go to my grave believing that and using that terminology. Doesn't mean he's against them in all things, but in that moment, Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? That's a crazy thought for the guy who said, I and the Father are one, the majority of his adult life. The whole gospel of John is I and the Father are one. And now Jesus is saying, we are not one. I'm forsaken by you. This is why the Garden of Gethsemane, he had drops of blood. So that's why I said that. All right, this is the last question the person wants to know. Uh, could the disobedience and eventual, eventually death of the first generational Israelite after Exodus be connected to the 10th plague? Could the disobedience of the Israelites, say that again? Um, could the disobedience and eventual death of the first generational Israelite after Exodus, be connected to the 10th plague? No. No, I don't think so. I think the disobedience of the first generation of the Israelites were connected to the disobedience to the Ten Commandments and things like making a golden calf, uh, it complaining about God's provision in the wilderness, complaining, saying stuff like, man, calling Egypt. Remember that? We saw this a few weeks ago. Calling Egypt the land of milk and honey. Like, and you have, have you ever done something for somebody? You ever done something for somebody? Like, you really went out of your way, and they were just ungrateful, like, didn't say thank you, didn't? And you feel like, dang, I, I mean, it was like, man, I scraped up, I worked hard to scrape up money to give you, and now you got an attitude. Or like, you're just ungrateful. Like, there's a sense of, like, I'm not helping them again. You know, you, you feel a certain type of way when someone represents, like, like a lack of gratitude for something you've worked. I mean, some of you here won't relate to this, but for the parents who have maybe gotten a conflict with their children and they say something like, well, I never asked you to do that for me. You're like, huh? That's when you'd be like, man, I gave birth. You know what it was like to man, You know what kind of baby you were? You weren't Moses, like the beautiful baby Moses. Do you realize what kind of baby you were? You weren't beautiful. Like, you was crying all night, kept us up. You did all this and all that. But I did this because I love you. For you to say I didn't ask you to do that is like a slap in the face. So what do you think that means to God when he saves you from Egypt? You see all of it. It's not like people died and we're talking about hundreds of years later. You actually remember because you said... Man, wish we had the meat pot. Remember, remember the meat pots in Israel as a slave, calling that the place that God said he's taking you to. In Exodus 32, making a golden calf and then saying, here, O Israel, are your gods. Like, that's why the first generation, the complaining, the, and even Moses got offended, hit the rock, water comes out of it. And he says, man, you ain't going to the promised land either. Even Moses. So I, I don't think it was, I think the death of the firstborn son, the connection to the Ten Commandments is that it set in motion Israel's obedience to God. Israel didn't have to obey God at anything. They didn't even, they were just watching all this take place.
But then at that particular point, it's like now you have to obey. And that was the beginning of obedience for them. But the, but the intentionality of their obedience began in reaction to the death of the firstborn son. You got to remember who's doing this is God. God knows at some point it will be the death of his firstborn son. So some of the imagery and the parallelism is intentional. It's not, it's God's making a point of, and I think when you see stuff like, you know how a prophecy is crazy because it was prophesied in 700 BC and then it came true? I mean, a lot of the reason why we believe in the Bible is because some of the prophetic things it said about Jesus were true when they were said 800 years prior, right? Part of that, and when you read genealogies, you know what genealogies in the Bible are for? to show you God's faithfulness through those people and the promises kept through those generations of people. So when you see parallelism, like blood and water, death of the firstborn son, that seemed disconnected, Israel had no idea what's happening, to later see that that same thing is happening again in God, it's showing you the faithfulness and the consistency of the God that you believe in. He's not a God that's going to do all this stuff, and he's not that unpredictable. Some of it is just, look, I'm faithful from beginning to end. So the things that what happened, I'm going to recreate and reverse in redemption, rebellion reversal. God is showing you, I've been watching the whole time, I've been faithful, and this is why these parallels exist. So I think their disobedience was not connected to the 10th plague in the direct sense, but it was the 10th plague was what began Israel's obedience to God that led to the 10 commandments, and they disobeyed that. And that eventually led to the death of his firstborn son. So, good questions. That's all we got? All right. If you don't have your, uh, we're going to take communion as we always do every. If you, if you get um, communion every week, like in between or like right before we do communion, I want to pray for you. Because you know we do this every week. At some point, if you, have a, if you have a meeting at your job at 9 a.m., you should be there before 9 a.m. to be on your job. It's funny to me to watch people get up and go get it. Oh, we're doing communion, I forgot. Uh, we only do this every Sunday, 52 times a year. But it's just me. I don't know. Maybe it's, it's biblical Alzheimer's or something. I don't know. You just forget. The death of the firstborn son, that's what this is. This is a memorial of that that we take every week. Our church doesn't exist unless the death of the firstborn son happens. Your faith is futile unless the death of the firstborn son and his resurrection happens. Everything that we believe in, every song that we sing, every prayer that we cry out, every aspect of faith that we have is irrelevant unless there is the death of the firstborn son. And so each week we have the privilege, whether we're talking about Jesus directly or not, we remind ourselves whether the message does it or not. Today was a direct connection, but there are oftentimes our messages are not, so we're reminded of the death of the firstborn son each time we do this. And the people who are supposed to remember this are people who actually believe in the death of the firstborn son. This is not for people who are curious and haven't said, I want to follow the Lord and are not living to honor the Lord. This is for those who remember what the Lord has done, 
not as a narrative, but as a salvation that has changed our lives. So we take this, and we do this every week to remember what it's really about, what it's really for. And so, Lord, we are grateful for, sometimes not as grateful as we should be, but we are grateful for the death of you, the firstborn son, your body that was broken, your blood that was shed. The reality of that particular brutality, the, the 39 lashes on your back with a whip of bone, stone, and glass designed to rip the skin off each time it dug into your flesh, to you carrying a 100-pound or so wooden cross that was so difficult that they had to grab Simon of Cyrene to walk it, help you walk it, help you walk to your death, for you to lay on this piece of wood with your back ripped open, to watch men seemingly excited as they divide up your clothes, put nails in you so that one day, men and women in this room who are now brothers and sisters in you, who will share in eternity with you, having escaped the consequences of sin because of faith in you. We are grateful. And we remember each week what that means for us. So, Father, we pray that you would receive us eating this as a symbol, as a reminder of our faith and our commitment to persevere and obey you. We eat this together. And, Father, as we, as we drink this, it is a reminder of the blood that was shed the blood that came out of your body, that, that dripped from your side with the spear, that came from your hands and your feet and your back, and, and the crown of thorns that potentially pierced your temple, the top of your head. All that blood, all of it, meant something much deeper. For those six hours on the cross were the greatest suffering ever because of who you are and the intensity of what it meant. And we will not understand that. But by your grace, through eternity, we'll learn more and more and grow deeper and deeper in love with you for your blood that you shed for us. For you, you say in Revelation 5, you appear as a lamb who was slain. So even in heaven, you bear the marks of our salvation on your body. And for that, we drink and remember. And now, Lord, in a world of distraction, in a world of busyness, in a world of anxiety, in a world of things to do, it's easy to sit here and, and agree and have our focus, but then be completely distracted the rest of the week. So, Lord, I pray that you would use what was said here, use relationships that are had, use our core groups, use our own private times of prayer and reading of your word. Use those things to help us cultivate it all in you for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Don't forget Saturday, uh, if you wish to explore membership, we'll be meeting right here, 9 a.m., behind that wall in the double classroom. I'll be there at 9 a.m. Men, 1130. We will be having a men's meeting. 
and there may be donuts. So, the guys, we just want donuts. Uh, Chris's group is meeting Tuesday night, and they're going to turn the church upside down. So, uh, love you guys. Appreciate you. We'll, Lord willing, see you when we see you.